Coming up this hour, words from the Surgeon General to churches, and then John Lewis uh, had an op-ed run on the day of his funeral. We're going to discuss that next here on The Common Good. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. As always, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, online, 1160hope.com. And you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Ian, it is Friday. Happy Friday, my man. Thank you. It is not only Friday, but it is my wedding anniversary. Oh, that's outstanding. How many years? I think I know this, but but go ahead and tell our audience how many years. Well, it's the big it's the big three oh, Brian. Thirty years happily married, and uh it's been the best thirty years of my life. <laughs> well, let me guess. Four years? Is it four years? That's right, four, yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. You're like an old married couple now. That's awesome, man. I have when a do you, when do you the threshold into old married couple. Is that year three? When does that happen? You know what? I remember five being a big one. Again, oh, now that I've made it all the way to 20, I remember five being like, oh, now we, we've reached one of those anniversaries that's like, a, you know, like you're supposed to do something for it. Like five's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, so. I think you're supposed to do something every time, Brian. I know, but five is like that big one. I was telling you yeah. a story yesterday that for my 10, uh, we went all the way and celebrated. Uh, most people go on vacations and stuff for 10. We went to Lombard. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Lombard is a very nice city. We had a wonderful time. So uh, you got uh, you got big plans. I know sometimes it's hard to celebrate with little kids around, but uh, you, you excited for your anniversary weekend? We, I, we are, yes. And Grandma has very graciously agreed to uh, pull an overnighter with the boys. So we awesome. just got like an Airbnb fairly nearby, so that we didn't you know spend our precious time driving. But uh, yeah, we got we got a whole bunch of fun activities planned. So I think I think it's going to be good. I think you should tell our audience what town you're going to be in so we can put like a uh, the first person to get a selfie with Ian. <laughs> that is a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, we probably shouldn't do that. Well, happy anniversary and more importantly, happy anniversary to your wife. Okay. And uh, that, that is, is more important. You're right. Yep. That is good news for you guys. So uh, I did tell you, I teased this before we started that uh, I found myself, I was sitting by myself. My family was sleeping in a little bit today. And so I'm the old guy. So I get up really early. Uh, I was watching ESPN this morning and I ended up crying watching ESPN. And I had this moment of going, oh, I've reached that stage now. (laughs) Do, Do tell Brian, what made you cry? All right. It actually was really, uh, it was really touching. So I don't know if you guys ever listened to ESPN radio, but Mike Golick has been on the morning show for the past 22 years. And this morning was his last show. Mm. Uh, somewhat unceremoniously, ESPN's making some changes, but today was his last show. And so it was all reminiscing. Uh, he said he's done like 4,500 shows. And I was trying to do the math. Wow. Like, yeah, it was crazy. So the last segment, right, the last 20 minutes was him and his family. So his son is on the show. You know, he's probably 30 years old. Another son then, daughter, their spouses, all who've kind of grown up in this show, right? And his wife, who's weeping through the whole thing. Right. And uh, about five minutes left in the show, the one son who is a part of the show goes, this is sad for everybody else. But for us, 
even when the microphone turns off, you're still going to be our dad. And he goes on to say about how much he loves his dad and how much wow. of a dream it's been to do this with his dad. They're all weeping. And all of a sudden, I am just <laughs> weeping in my chair, trying to picture like this awesome family moment in front of everybody. It was really sweet. So anyway, I started my morning crying watching ESPN this morning. I mean, that's sort of a uh, let's have a catch kind of moment, right? That's the the father-kid dynamic thing that I think you know, makes us all a little weepy, right? It was, it was, it, it's funny because they were just joking, joking, joking. And then the son just started saying all this stuff and they all just lost it. And right, I was like, right. oh my gosh. And uh, So anyway, that's how I started my morning. And uh, the clip is all over Twitter. You can find it uh, where Mike Golick Jr. says to his dad, you're still going to be my dad. And, uh, and it was, go watch it and see if you don't cry. <laughs> we'll just put it that way. So. A uh, hard right turn here. Uh, a friend of the show, Ed Stetzer, uh, he has uh, put out multiple articles, as he does every week, at his blog and other places at Christianity Today. Uh, and I wanted to highlight two of them. The first one I found really interesting, and it just came out yesterday, and it was an interview uh, with Jerome Adams. If you don't know who Jerome Adams is, he is the Surgeon General of the United States, uh, and he offered important medical guidance Excuse me for faith communities today, and it was so simplistic, but also, um, I kind of as I read it, I was like, okay, I hear what he's saying, and we need to go about this. He said, uh, "My message, if I was talking to your congregants, would be number one: we can turn this thing around in three to four weeks by doing three simple things." And you're like, all right, and he said, uh, "Embrace face masks when we're in public." Make sure we're washing our hands frequently for 20 seconds or use hand sanitizer and watch your distance. And I read those, man, and, and I was like, okay, that's really good. Those are simple. We can do that. And then I was like, wait, we've been talking about these for five months and like we have like totally messed these up and can't do it. So I went back and forth with going, okay, this is easy. And at the same time going, oh, yep, well, I know people won't do this. I don't know. Did you find those to be just... um Again, a reminder of really the really simplistic things that we could do to really uh, turn the curve and turn this around. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's the stuff that we've been saying for a long time now. It is amazing. When all of this began, I remember having a sense that, oh, this is going to get politicized. Like it was, yeah. I remember feeling that really early into this hold. I didn't quite know to what degree or, or exactly how that would play out. You know, now, uh, end of July, I think it's clear how politicized it's become. And we've, you know, we've even had people on the show that don't right. entirely agree on, you know, everything that we've said, or even we probably disagree on certain uh, boundaries and parameters, but it is, we're at the point now where we're like, yeah, this is what we've been saying. I just wonder, will reiterating the same thing make any difference or do we need to, you know, choose a different tactic or like, where do you weigh in with the, with some of the MacArthur stuff and saying like, yeah, it, it has, it has taken lives, but you know, in terms of percentages, it's not it's not as big a deal as maybe where you know what I mean. Like, there's all sorts of narratives going around. So I don't I don't think it's necessarily about the simplicity of what it right. could look like. I think it's about a disagreement that it actually helps, or what the motives are behind the people telling me to do these things. I mean, that's that's where it starts to get a little messy. Absolutely, and I I, I think you bring up a good point. Uh, we talked yesterday about Dr. Fauci saying, "Hey, it's going to kind of come on a rise in the Midwest," and kind of going, "Oh." Oh, man. OK, because one thing it's been one thing to see, you know, the rise in the south or the west and go, OK, but we're doing well here and kind of saying, hey, we could be facing this coming up and going, yeah, 
as you said, what are the next steps? What are the, what can we do differently? And my fear, I was talking to my brother-in-law about this while we we're out of town, you know, my fear, and I think it's a well-founded fear is even if things get bad, I think, I don't think that there's, uh, there's a large segment of our population who won't uh, even go so far, not even shut their lives down, but even, you know, wear masks or do this or that. And so it does become uh, your question. What can we do? What can we do? And he did end this way, talking to pastors and churches. He said, the final thing to tell those folks, those are, he's talking to people who are already meeting and doing this. He says, if you want to open and stay open, then you have to be the loudest advocates in the community of wearing a mask and doing the things that will lower that background transmission rate. And I thought that was a good word. Uh, the church, whether you're open or not, whether you're meeting or not, the church has an opportunity to its congregations and to the community uh, to be advocates and to be loud advocates to what can be done to change this. And again, I'm not so Pollyanna to know that even the majority of people will do that, but I thought that was a good call from him. Well, and that's part of what's tricky is because what you're saying that churches have an opportunity to advocate for some church leaders saying we don't want exactly. to advocate for this. It's not a matter of like, oh, I didn't know I had an opportunity to advocate for this. They're saying, no, by advocating for that, you're advocating for the enemy or the wrong side or the wrong right. conclusion. That's that's where I think you find a lot of the disagreement. Yeah, and disagreement, and that's that's what becomes discouraging. So uh, we'll have another article. Stetzer wrote an article about the Nevada Supreme Court case. Maybe we'll touch on that another time. But I thought this was good words here from the Surgeon General. Give it a read. Let us know what you think. Uh, coming up next in the New York Times just yesterday, on the day of his funeral, uh, ran an op-ed from John Lewis. Uh, we're going to read that and discuss it next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Friday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. Uh, if you've been watching the news over the last couple of days, you're fully aware that uh Representative John Lewis passed away. And we talked about John Lewis yesterday and just mm -hmm. uh, whether you agree with his politics or not doesn't matter because this man lived a monumental life and lived a monumental life. And you may have seen uh, three living ex-presidents at his funeral all speaking yesterday, President Clinton, President Bush and President Obama. And uh, it was stirring. And then it came out that uh, uh, Representative Lewis actually wrote a uh, letter, an op-ed, right before he was right before he died. So he knew that he was going to be dying soon, and he said, "I want this to run in the New York Times on the day of my funeral." Man, uh, and so it ran yesterday. Just before we even get into that, Ian, that's pretty cool, right? Like, hey, run this on the day that I die. I want to leave kind of my last words. That's really profound. Yeah, it's one of those things that I feel like I've heard sermons about. Uh, I've heard, I mean, I've even heard commencement speeches. Like, what do you want to be said about you, you know, on the day of your funeral? Right. But I, I've not, I can't think in recent memory when I saw someone do something like this, where like, hey, I've, I've already written it out. Like I've certainly, you and I have conducted enough funerals in our life where people certainly yep. have written letters to their family kind of thing. Um, but it, it is, there's something beautiful about, again, whether you disagree with him or not, or, I mean, obviously, you and I don't even agree with every policy right. or every law, but there's something beautiful about like, here, here's my final words kind of to the world and uh, a chance for us to interact with them. I think it's pretty wonderful. So rather than read it, we actually found an audio version of Morgan Freeman reading it. So right. it's going to be about five minutes long. And uh, then we're going to reflect on that. Let's listen to this. While my time here has now come to an end, 
I want you to know that in the last days and hours of my life, you inspired me. You filled me with hope about the next chapter of the great American story when you used your power to make a difference in our society. Millions of people motivated simply by human compassion laid down the burdens of division. Around the country and the world, you set aside race, class, age, language, and nationality to demand respect for human dignity. That is why I had to visit Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, though I was admitted to the hospital the following day. I just had to see and feel it for myself that after many years of silent witness, the truth is still marching on. Emmett Till was my George Floyd. He was my Rayshard Brooks, Sandra Bland, and Breonna Taylor. He was 14 when he was killed, and I was only 15 years old at the time. I will never, ever forget the moment when it became so clear that he could easily have been me. In those days, fear constrained us like an imaginary prison, and troubling thoughts of potential brutality committed for no understandable reason were the bars. Though I was surrounded by two loving parents, plenty of brothers, sisters, and cousins, their love could not protect me from the unholy oppression waiting just outside that family circle. Unchecked, unrestrained violence and government-sanctioned terror had the power to turn a simple stroll to the store for some Skittles or an innocent morning jog down a lonesome country road into a nightmare. If we are to survive as one unified nation, we must discover what so readily takes root in our hearts that could rob Mother Emanuel Church in South Carolina of her brightest and best, shoot unwitting concert-goers in Las Vegas, and choke to death the hopes and dreams of a gifted violinist like Elijah McLean. Like so many young people today, I was searching for a way out, or some might say a way in. And then I heard the voice of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on an old radio. He was talking about the philosophy and discipline of nonviolence. He said we are all complicit when we tolerate injustice. He said it is not enough to say it will get better by and by. He said each of us has a moral obligation to stand up, speak up, and speak out. When you see something that is not right, you must say something. You must do something. Democracy is not a state. It is an act. And each generation must do its part to help build what we call the beloved community. A nation and world society at peace with itself. Ordinary people with extraordinary vision can redeem the soul of America by getting in what I call good trouble, necessary trouble. Voting and participating in the democratic process are key. The vote is the most powerful nonviolent change agent you have in a democratic society. You must use it because it is not guaranteed. You can lose it. You must also study and learn the lessons of history because humanity has been involved in this soul-wrenching existential struggle for a very long time. People on every continent have stood in your shoes through decades and centuries before you. The truth does not change. 
That is why the answers worked out long ago can help you find solutions to the challenges of our time. Continue to build union between movements stretching across the globe because we must put away our willingness to profit from the exploitation of others. Though I may not be here with you, I urge you to answer the highest calling of your heart and stand up for what you truly believe. In my life, I have done all I can to demonstrate that the way of peace, the way of love and nonviolence is the more excellent way. Now it is your turn to let freedom ring. When historians pick up their pens to write the story of the 21st century, let them say that it was your generation who laid down the heavy burdens of hate at last, and that peace finally triumphed over violence, aggression, and war. So I say to you, walk with the wind, brothers and sisters, and let the spirit of peace and the power of everlasting love be your guide. All right, Ian, with like the two minutes we have left here, uh, pretty powerful words there from uh, from John Lewis, right? Yeah, it's kind of like, did you see the movie Get Low with Robert Duvall? No, he's, I did not. He's, it's a great movie, but the whole idea is he, he wants to throw a funeral for himself while he's still alive. And, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of see what people think of him. But this is, this is almost kind of the opposite. But I, I liked this paragraph here. He said, ordinary people with extraordinary vision can redeem the soul of America mm-hmm. By getting in what I call good trouble, necessary trouble, voting and participating in the democratic process are key. The vote is the most powerful nonviolent change agent that you have in a democratic society. You must use it because it is not guaranteed. You can lose it like that. And again, a lot of people were posting this idea of good trouble, which uh, I, I feel like I feel like is a real legacy kind of statement that, again, people will probably disagree with. But I, I think that kind of summarizes, at least in, in some sense, the core of what he was really about. Yeah, and I love how he ends. He says, when historians pick up their pens, let them say that it was your generation. So speaking to this next generation who laid down the heavy burdens of hate at last and that peace finally triumphed over violence, aggression, and war. So I say to you, walk with the wind, brothers and sisters, and let the spirit of peace and power of everlasting love be your guide. Just powerful words. Congressman John Lewis, civil rights leader, congressman who died on July 17th, writing that for the New York Times. And it did leave me thinking, um, you know, it's a weird thought to have, but if I were to write something after I would, you know, to go out on the day of my funeral, not for the nation, maybe, but maybe for just my church or my family, what would that be? Yeah. What would I want to say? That's an interesting exercise. I think to think through, um, like you said, we've all heard sermons about that and other things, but actually think through John Lewis spent time there thinking, what do I want to leave this world with? Yeah. And, uh, really penned those powerful words. So we wanted you to hear that. We think that that's powerful, and uh, you can check out more of what John Lewis had to say at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, an interesting article out of Christianity Today uh, about a book from Jim Wilder about Dallas Willard. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, glad to have you joining us. I just realized, I think all week since I've been back, I've gone with Alongside Ian. I'm going to break that one in the next segment. I mean, there's no need to, really, Brian, but today is National Avocado Day, so that would be a good day to uh, to try something new. Is it really? Yeah, uh, it's also uh, Mutt's Day, 
Systems Administration Appreciation Day. It's a it's a lot of pretty pretty great days. Uncommon uh, Instrument Day. A lot, oh. a, lot of, a lot of things to celebrate today. So unpopular opinion. I think I think this is an unpopular opinion. Uh, me don't like the avocado. In fact, I will always take it off whatever it comes on. Uh, are you pro avocado or no? So if anyone out there would like to be my new co-host here on the Common Good, uh, you can send me a message over at the Facebook page. Brian, unfortunately, will not be joining us on Monday. Brian, uh, what would you like to say to our audience before uh, you're booted from the show? I'm going to stand by the uh, uh, my, my lack of of love for the avocado, but now I I've think- learned that my that that that. That moves me down in the eyes of my radio host, but it also does that in the eyes of my wife as well, who loves not, the not just us, but also the Lord, Brian. I think that this is, <laughs> I think this is a sanctification issue, to be honest. Little did people know at the Last Supper they had that avocado sitting right there, hundred percent. Well, Judas didn't, but everyone else. <laughs> yeah, I've never been able to get into the avocado, and uh, yeah. So if I've that's put- a character, if that's a character flaw of mine, I'll take it. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll stop there. <laughs> so at Christianity Today, uh, Jeff Holsclaw, who's been on the show here friend before, of show. Uh, friend of the show, wrote a book review called Stuck in a Spiritual Rut. Neuroscience might have the answer. Uh, this is a book called Renovated, God, Dallas Willard, and the Church that Transforms by Jim Wilder. So uh, Jeff Holsclaw is reviewing this book. And, uh, Ian, I know you found this particularly interesting. What's going on with this book? Yeah, Jim actually did a, uh, a wonderful podcast with Sky Jatani, who has also been on the show for the uh, Holy Post podcast, talking about this book and his relationship with Dallas Willard. I learned in that podcast even that the original plan was for them to kind of write that book together. And uh, Dallas Willard, unfortunately, passed. But wonderful oh, wow. interview. And if uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Holy Post, by the way, go and listen to it. It's, it's great. But let me just – I mean, Jeff – He's a great writer anyway, so I'm just going to read some of what he wrote. He starts by saying, read your Bible, pray, go to church twice on Sundays, and don't sin. Be sure not to sin. That was the extent of my spiritual formation. Of course, no one talked about spiritual formation when I was growing up. Reading the Bible, fasting, and praying were a part of my devotions, not a part of a package of historic, quote, spiritual disciplines. These are just things that we did to grow our faith, to become holy as God is holy. And the simplicity of these activities served me well until, while in college, they didn't. That's when I encountered Richard Foster's devotional classics, soon followed by Dallas Willard's The Spirit of the Disciplined, Understanding How God Changes Lives, and his Renovation of the Heart, Putting on the Character of Christ, which, by the way, read all of those books. They're wonderful. Yeah, Uh, These books opened my heart and mind to broader streams of God's life-giving water. They led me down God's ancient paths of transformation. As for so many, discovering this wider tradition of spiritual disciplines, which included practices like meditation, fasting, and Sabbath rest, was a revelation and a relief. I no longer had to cut my own path with God each day alone. Now an ancient way stretched before me that I could walk with others. Jim Wilder's new book, uh, Renovated, God, Dallas Willard, and the Church That Transforms, integrates these ancient pathways with findings from brain science about our neural pathways. Hmm. Uh, Wilder shows how contemporary neuroscience transforms our understanding of spiritual formation. And then uh, he he puts parenthetically, before Willard's health began to decline. Wilder's goal had been to co-write this book with him. That's what I was just saying. As a witness to their original collaboration, Wilder alternates his own chapters with chapters by Willard based on transcripts of the lectures he gave at the 2012 Heart and Soul Conference. These chapters, which summarize his thoughts on human life and the process of spiritual maturity, are the perfect introduction for those unfamiliar with his work. So uh, before we kind of get into the meat of it, 
Uh, you're right. <laughs> this is this is my kind of book right here. It's yeah. got Dallas Willard. It's got brain science. It's got ancient practices. I I haven't read it. While there is somebody that we're we'd love to have on the show, if anyone knows him, uh, that that would be a blast. But I yeah, I'd love to know how how does all that hit you so far? It was your upbringing uh, in any way similar to Holzclaw's? I think so. Yeah, it's just you know read your Bible, pray, don't sit and like. Um, and then I remember reading Spirit of Disciplines in college, uh, and it being transformational in that way. It's just interesting, right? We live in a day. How often do we read stories about kind of uh, the evangelical world and they're um, not really buying into science. And so this book is saying, no, neuroscience transforms our understanding of spiritual formation. I think that will blow a lot of people's minds. And uh, I definitely, when I read this, I'm like, oh, this book, Ian, if he hasn't already bought it, this is one that he's going to buy. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I like what he says here next because he talks about, you know, kind of zealously going after these practices and then kind of admitting yeah, these practices didn't fix everything. And I soon found that other church leaders were wondering the same things. Why do some people benefit from spiritual disciplines while others seem to flounder? Renovated speaks to these very questions. Wilder's book is for those feeling stuck in a spiritual formation rut, for those longing to see others grow spiritually, and for those interested in how brain science transforms our understanding of spiritual growth. Wilder's book recommends three main shifts in how we understand the process of spiritual formation. Uh, the first is a shift from thinking about God to thinking with God, which I think mm. is brilliant. That's such an important shift. Uh, Tozer famously said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Yet Wilder, leaning on what we know about the brain, argues that thinking about God is too slow of a mental process to actively transform our lives. He calls it a slow track mental process that can only focus on one thing at a time. Thoughts that develop on the slower track appear in our minds too late to inform actions in real time. This slow track process is great when there is time to pause and reflect. But he says a better alternative is thinking with God, which utilizes fast track mental processes that can focus on and react to multiple things at once. Here's the example that he gives. Have you ever reacted to a dangerous situation without thinking? Have you ever responded to someone in a way you regret? This is your fast track brain at work. Wilder explains that our fast track brain produces a reaction to our circumstances before we have a chance to consider how we would rather react. I'll pause there. Have you ever thought about spiritual formation in any of those types of categories? Not at all. And, uh, <laughs> although the, the whole concept of with God, that, that's Sky Jatani's first book, right? That's uh, right. And it, it's, it's called a, With. It's brilliant. It's a wonderful book. Uh, we're giving you people lots of books to pick up right now. That's one of them that I would. But no, this is this is not the way I tend to think about things. And that's why I love to read articles like this. It's like, okay, this makes some sense, even if I haven't thought about it this way. And he talks a little bit too about how thinking these like fast, it's, it's how teams work together uh, to accomplish a goal. It's, it's how it's a lot of that, like muscle memory type things. He says the yeah. difference between thinking about God and thinking with God is more than just the difference between practice time and game time. We might be tempted to assume that a shift toward thinking with God would focus on our actions more than our thoughts. And in a certain sense, programs of spiritual formation do tend to emphasize our practices more than our underlying beliefs. But even spiritual practice only gets us part of the way towards spiritual maturity because true spiritual maturity transformation requires a change in our fast track brain. And changing our fast track brain is connected to growing our relational skills and capacities. Again, I think it's a much longer article that we won't have time to get into, but I, I wonder if there are people that would find this controversial that we tend to think of like our spiritual lives as disconnected from our brain or our body, to be honest. And like, even we had Justin Gillan 
uh, earlier in the week, he was talking a lot about the integration of of body into spiritual formation is one of the things that's really necessary, but lacks a lot of attention, at least in the West. And uh, I, I mean, all that to say, I'm really, really excited for this book. And I did I mention that I'd love to have Jim on the show because I think he'd be, be great. Be be fascinating. Great. I mean, the article ends by talking about a third shift uh, in a form of discipleship rooted in uh, is a is from a form of discipleship rooted in me to one rooted in we. And we could talk about mm. that all day. But that mm-hmm. community, I think this looks like a great book. We'd encourage you uh, to go pick it up. You can read the whole review uh, at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, uh, an interesting um, study uh, that Fox News put that claims that the United States is second to last in raising a family. We're going to talk about that study next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. back to the common good am 1160 hope for your life uh with ian simpkins my name is brian Fromm. glad to have you joining us on this friday nice (laughs) thank you as a reminder find us on facebook at the common good radio show online 1160hope.com you can get our podcast wherever you get your podcast subscribe rate and review and uh we would love for you to send us some messages because ian and i are having uh some relational issues right now over the avocado and Mm -hmm. so Mm-hmm. Uh, my my hatred of the avocado and his love. So uh, this may be our last date together. But if we are, we're going to go out with a bang. So yeah, I, I wouldn't say maybe. I, I think it's definitely. <laughs> it's it, it's, I, it's also I, this this one is another deal breaker, Brian. It's also National Raspberry Cake Day. How do you feel about the raspberry? I love the raspberry. Okay, and totally redeemed yourself. We're back together. In fact. When we were on vacation and we went and got ice cream, if black raspberry ice cream is on the menu every time, mm, I will get it mm, every time. Mm, mm, delicious. Yep. Yep. All right. So we're back in. We're, we're good. Uh, let's, I mean, tread lightly. <laughs> tread lightly. Because before that, I, I ruined your anniversary weekend. I mean, that was it right there. You're just going to stare at the avocado at the restaurant. <laughs> So we teased this before at Fox News. It says this United States ranks second to last for raising a family. The raising a family index is comprised of 30 critical statistics. Let me read this. And then I'm curious if you think it's true, because obviously people can put out statistics and do surveys and you can end up just going, "Ah, I'm, I'm not sure that I agree with where you end up on here. So let me read this. The United States has been ranked among the worst countries in several categories that make up the Raising a Family Index created by research travel site Asher and Lyric, which mm. based its study on six criteria. The website, which was started by a by a couple Asher Ferguson and Lyric Benson Ferguson, researched 35 countries from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development to see which are the best for raising a family in 2020. The definitive Raising a Family Index is comprised of 30 critical statistics from trusted international sources. Each country is given a score based on these stats across six categories, safety, happiness, cost, health, education, and time. Hmm. Within those categories, each is broken down into five subcategories to come up with a final score. Overall, the United States was the second worst wealthy nation to raise a family in uh, in 2020. Uh, failing specifically in safety, cost, and time. It was just above Mexico, which was in last place at 35. She said, uh, the co-founder said, the first time I looked at this data, I was in disbelief. Where the U.S. faltered, according to the stats, were in criteria such as maternity and paternity leave, vacation days, out-of-pocket health spending, childcare costs, homicide, and school shootings. 
the highest rated nations were all in Europe, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, and Finland, with each getting an A plus final index score. The United States did manage to pull a C plus in happiness uh, in education. The happiness score was determined by human freedom index, suicide rates, and family income inequality, among others. Uh, anyway, so that's the background of this study. A, does it surprise you where we rank there? And or, or do you uh, would you push back on this a little bit? Hold on. I can't talk right now. I'm booking a flight to Iceland. So <laughs> just come back to me. Uh, I've I've read other studies that have asserted similar findings. I mean, I I do know enough about statistics, at least to know that, like, there can be some massaging of the findings. And I'm not a statistician. Uh, I'll say that boldly. But I, I do think I do think. Did you ever watch the show Newsroom? It was an Aaron Sorkin show. I never did, but I, I know the show you're talking about. I there was that. like a uh, an intro. I think it was the first episode, and the scene went mega viral because it was Jeff Daniels' character, and uh, it was him and two other pundits, I think, and they were asking, why is America the greatest country in the world? And the two to his right kind of gave sort of predictable answers, and then he sort of snaps and goes on this rant why it's not, but how it used to be and how it could be again. Have you have you seen that clip? I have seen that. I have seen that clip. Yes. It was I mean, it was pretty it was pretty moving, although he does kind of take a jab at like the percentage of Americans that believe in angels. And I was like, wait a minute. That's, that's me. But it was it was uh, it was pretty moving because it wasn't just it wasn't just critique. It wasn't just. Yeah, yeah, this place sucks. It was it's actually kind of the difference, I think, between like critique and a prophetic word. Like everyone on Twitter right now is critiquing everybody, just dismantling everything. I think a prophetic word is rooted in like love for the thing. Like, yeah, but we could be better. We could do this better. Like a, a, a prophetic word to the church is is meant to be something that's like a challenge, but it's root it's rooted in love, right? And I think uh, these findings sometimes people will just cast off entirely because they don't like it or they just choose to disagree with it. They're like, well, I'm happy, so why isn't everyone happy? I think. There is some wisdom in saying, okay, well, even if this hasn't been my experience, how how can I lean into what they're saying might be true, at least for a lot of Americans, to actually make a difference? You know, I think that would be a helpful way to kind of think about this. Yeah, and I, I think the one that stands out to me um, is that issue of time. And mm. uh, we've talked many times about this, but it is something uh, I think – never having lived in another culture, from what I hear, at least, our, our culture tends to be a lot more fast-paced and a lot more, um, I've got to do X, Y, I got, I got to stuff all this stuff into my calendar. And uh, other countries don't tend to work that way. Other cultures don't tend to work that way. And uh, that makes it hard as somebody who's raising three kids right now, yeah. uh, because then their schedules get equally as busy as they get right. older. It's again, remember when the pandemic started, it was one of those things like, well, we hate that we're in a pandemic. We're not, we would never say this is good, but it was a good aspect of it where we all had to slow down mm. and we all had to, you know, kind of be with our family. So that's one of the indicators there uh, that I buy. And I guess I would, I wanted to focus in on that one a little bit for, for, you know, as you think about yourself, as you're a pretty new parent, how do you think through the issue of time going forward? Like how, how are you not going to fall into the trap of like, Yep, I'm just gonna just put so much into my calendar. We're just gonna run around like our like a chicken with our head cut off. Yeah, I I have a couple of responses. One, 
I remember a tweet that I said that I can't believe I found it while you were talking. This kind of struck me with what you were saying. Uh, Laura Truman said, I wonder if Martha was so angry at Mary because she wanted to sit at Jesus's feet too, but hadn't given herself permission to be still. Sometimes we're mad at folks living the life we wish we were brave enough to live. We frame it as a moral issue, but really we're just so sad. That that resonated with me because sometimes, you know, when people are taking appropriate amounts of vacation or they're actually guarding their weekends, there is sometimes, unfortunately, in me, and I, I really don't like this part of me, that wants to like, oh, man, look at them taking vacation. How, how dare they? I hear myself and I'm like, that's healthy. They should be. You should be taking a vacation, Ian. You should be guarding your weekends better. You should be closing the laptop. You should be taking yeah. Sabbath. These are not only things that you believe, but things that you've preached about and written about. So like for me, that that's convicting as a single person. It's additionally convicting when I start to see my kids not only af- affected by my own kind of insatiable pace, but I'm sure once they get you know to like your kid's age and I see them even begin to like embody some of it, that's yep. going to be a whole other level of conviction. And it's not just, I, it begins for me as a theological conviction, but I think actually seeing it in practice and played out like affecting my family and our rhythms and health. Uh, I'm really, really hopeful that that will further motivate me to make hard decisions, to guard Sabbath, to close the laptop, to all some of those simple things I think are really where it starts. Yeah. For me uh, as a, I think uh, whether you have kids or not, you can understand this, but for me, especially as a dad, uh, the struggle becomes uh, that the things that take up a lot of my time are rarely bad things. It's, right, it's right. good things. Yeah. And it becomes what are the good things that we as a family have to say no to that I as a pastor have to say no to? Uh, what are the good things that by, by saying no to them, I'm going to free up the better thing of being able to spend time with my family and connect and they're going to be home. And that's where it gets difficult for me. If it was all bad things and we just got to get them out of our lives, we could do that. Right, right. Uh, it's this concept of like, Hey, the good things are still robbing you of what's best. And, and that's really hard. So we'd love to know your thoughts on this article. It's up at our Facebook page, the common good radio show. Well, the first hour is in the book. One more to go for the week free and Simpkins. I'm Brian Fromm. You're listening to the common good AM 1160. Hope you're like Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss disturbing news out of China. We're going to talk about the protest during the national anthem, and then Ian's going to share some of his tweets with us. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for spending some of your Friday with us, or whatever day you're listening to the podcast. We're glad that you're taking the time to be with us. Find our podcast wherever you get your podcast. We just ask that you subscribe, rate, and review. That does help us. Uh, share it with a friend. That's the anniversary gift that Ian and I think his wife probably want for you to oh, share. Yeah. She told me to that's, the only, the that's the only thing I should ask for. That's what she's. Please tell them. My the one thing my heart desires is for people to t- subscribe, rate, and review to the podcast. I mean, today Ian shared with us it is his four year wedding anniversary, so we are celebrating by sharing the podcast. And I can't think of anything better to do to honor them on their anniversary. <laughs> it is also the uh, feast day of Saint Ignatius of Loyola, so that's that's a good reason to do it. Another reason to share the podcast and Avocado Day, as you said before. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots going on, lots going on. I do. Uh, we did want to take some time to talk about a story that I, quite frankly, feel like I just haven't heard a lot about. 
Um, and it has to do uh, with ha- with what's happening in China uh, with the Uyghur Muslims. And so let me just read some of it. Some of you out there might be a whole lot more educated on this. Uh, I'm owning the fact that uh, for a story this big, uh, I don't know a ton about it. But let me just read some of it uh, for you. In recent years, uh, this is out of Vox. In recent years, the Chinese Communist Party has arbitrarily detained between 1 million and 3 million uh, Uyghurs in so-called re-education centers and forced them to undergo psychological indoctrination programs, such as studying communist propaganda and giving thanks to the Chinese president. Chinese officials have also reportedly used waterboarding and other forms of torture, including sexual abuse, as part of the indoctrination process. Listen to this line. It is the largest mass internment of an ethnic religious minority group since World War II. Wow. The concentration camps are the most extreme example of China's inhumane policies against the Uyghurs, but even those outside the camps are subject to repressive policies. China has used mass surveillance uh, to turn the city into a high-tech police state. So there's a lot more here, and we can get into it, but uh, so much jumps out to me. But that line, that this is the largest mass internment of an ethnic religious minority group since World War II, and we're talking off air too about uh, there's some a drone footage of just tons of uh, of these people being loaded into trains, and it's just uh, it just baffles me. I know stuff goes around on around the world that I don't quite understand or get, but it's just amazing in a in a bad way that this is even going on now. Yeah, there's an article uh, out of the Gospel Coalition that says an estimated one million Uyghurs, almost ten percent of the Uyghur population in China have been captured almost 10%. And that is, that's terrifying. Like I, I, we've done these types of international stories before, not, not quite like this, but I feel like you and I often end up saying something to the effect of what do we do? Like what, what does the American church, what do we here on this side of the world? Like what, what even is our response to this? Yeah. And that's what's really a struggle. I think part of it is what I just mentioned earlier is just education about it. Like I didn't know about this. Our producer, John, sent you and I something, I think, uh, you know, a couple of days ago uh, going, hey, we should talk about this. And I was like, well, I haven't even seen this. Like this was mm. this was new to me. And then you start to go, Bam, but it's huge. It says uh, I might mispronounce this this area called uh, Xinjiang where about 11 million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities live and is, is an autonomous region in China's northwest that borders Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, and Mongolia. It has been under Chinese control since 1949. Mm. Uh, they speak their own language and most practice a moderate form of Sunni Islam. Some activists uh, refer to the region as East Turkestan. Once situated along the ancient Silk Road, uh, uh, trading route, uh, this city is oil and resource rich. As it developed along with the rest of China, the region attracted uh, more of the Han Chinese, a migration encouraged by the Chinese government. So it's trying to lay out the framework as to why uh, this is even going on. It says the Chinese government justifies its clampdown on the Uyghurs and Muslim minorities by saying it's trying to eradicate extremism and separatist groups, attack some violent uh, by Uyghur separatists have occurred in recent years, and some have become foreign fighters joining groups like ISIS. But there's little evidence of any cohesive separatist movement with jihadist roots or otherwise that could challenge the Chinese government, experts tell me. 
Uh, and so it's, there's so much here in this article, but um, I, I don't know the answer, man. I, I think part of it is just education going, okay, be reminded that there's stuff going on outside of, you know, my house, my town, my city, whatever else. Um, but yeah, I don't really know what the, what the call is on us as individuals or us as a church beyond right now being educated. What comes to mind for you? Well, this article at a gospel question actually gives some good suggestions. I'm just going to read awesome. them. Uh, so the one question he outlines is, are there specific ways U.S. Christians can support the Uyghurs and other oppressed minorities in China? He writes, one way is to pray for them and against these evil structures that are oppressing them. It's not just Uyghurs that are being oppressed. It's also house church Christians, Catholics, Tibetan Buddhists, and other groups. I think Christians can help raise awareness of the plight of religious minorities in China within their Internet circles and by hosting speakers and webinars or Zoom meetings that include Uyghur activists. Uh, a number of such activists have gotten out of the concentration camps and can testify to the atrocities. Christians can help to host them and let their stories be known. That's mm. a brilliant idea. I think it's also very helpful to put a face on this crime. The party chairman, Chen Quango of Xinjiang, is the implementer of this police state. We need to show his face to the American public. People are familiar with Chinese President Xi Jinping. But here's a guy that's uh, that's on the Politburo, Chen Quango. That is she is giving the money to and has authorized to implement this police state. I think people need to see his face. They need to know that he's not only done it in Xinjiang, but also in Tibet. Uh, he goes on to say there are a number of treaties that need to be strengthened. We've got an international religious freedom alliance that has 29 nations in it. It just got started this year. But I think these are the sort of places where we can start to push these issues. We just have to get like-minded countries to join the cause. The other thing we need is more religious freedom roundtables. These are where activists for religious freedom from all faiths or no faith at all, who are interested in human rights and the dignity of religious freedom can work together to push back. We've got 29 started around the world, but we want 100 of these religious freedom roundtables in various countries. That's a way that people in those countries can organize to promote this fundamental right. It's not about a common theology because people don't agree on theology. It's about a common human right, the dignity of a person to pick their own faith orientation. It would be really helpful to get more of these roundtables going. So there's a bunch more to that article, but uh, that's up on our Facebook page. And I'd highly recommend you check it out because again, if you're like, you know, like Brian was saying, if you had no idea about any of this, this is a really great place to start, but it is just a start. I think there's a lot that we can do with our various platforms or our networks or our churches or our companies. And uh, I think especially for the Christ follower, this, this is like an urgent matter that like warrants our response. Yeah. And the elephant in the room uh, when talking about the Chinese communist government and things going on is how much of our products are, are made in China. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, is there something to be done? And there, that's for everyone to make their own call. The NBA is dealing with that right now, right? With their, uh, they have uh, so much of the NBA money is made over in China. And so they walk a real fine line. And so it's a, it's a, uh, the bigger the bigger conversation there is a difficult one, but this conversation about the Uyghurs and what's going on, I think, is at least something we all need to know about. And then, as you said, Joe Carter here at the Gospel Coalition really writes some good stuff here uh, that you can read uh, to get some background. Well, coming up next, uh, we are going to jump into, you know, we're not going to go into the weekend easy here, Ian. Instead, we're going to talk about the National Anthem and the protests going on during the National Anthem we're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good uh, on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I kind of forgot what our station name was there. <laughs> We're glad that you're joining us. Uh, with Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hopefully you've got a good weekend planned ahead of you. We're glad that you're spending some of your Friday 
with us. Now, remember, anything we talk about, you can find at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk, online, 1160hope.com. And you can get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, We are grateful to those of you uh, who do that. So uh, did you... did you even realize that basketball started again last night? Were you excited that the NBA tipped off again in the bubble in Orlando last night? Yeah, I was aware and and relatively excited. I wasn't uh, – who was it? Uh, maybe it was Kelly Skiles before you got back. She was saying that she, she like, hadn't slept because of the excitement that she was feeling. I wouldn't Is put my right? excitement at that level. But, uh, yeah, both aware and excited. So the NBA seems to be doing it well. The bubble still where these guys are living uh, – I'd love to have that conversation sometime. Would you go away from your family for three and a half months like this? Uh, but uh, they uh, haven't had any COVID issues uh, to this point, whereas Major League Baseball continues to have growing COVID issues at the moment. Uh-huh. Uh, people starting to get worried about whether that season is even going to be able to continue for many more weeks here. Uh, but within the bubble, uh, there has also been a lot of talk about what are the NBA players going to do uh, around the issues of social justice and the protests? And uh, was there going to be kind of any unified um, messaging going on? And so last night there were two games, uh, the Jazz and the Pelicans, followed by the Lakers and the Clippers. Both games came down to the very end and very exciting games. Uh, but what made it interesting is that both games, both teams, uh, all of the players, all of the coaches in both games kneeled during the national anthem uh, as a sign of solidarity and protest and raising awareness for police brutality. And uh, obviously that set Twitter ablaze. But uh, right, before, I think it was right after uh, the Jazz and the Pelicans national anthem, Charles Barkley uh, on TNT's NBA tip-off show said this. Let's listen to this. thing is, listen, the national anthem means different things to different people. Uh, I'm glad these guys are all unified. But if people, if people don't kneel, they're not a bad person. I, I want to make that perfectly clear. Uh, I'm glad they had unity. But if we have a guy who doesn't want to kneel because the anthem means something to him, he should not be vilified. Uh, it's Charles Barkley always has uh, strong opinions. But, uh, Ian, I thought it would be helpful for us to at least wade into the waters a little bit uh, because it is – uh, unbelievably emotional around the idea, starting with Colin Kaepernick, of the kneeling during the national anthem. And I guess rather than asking you, what do you think of it? Uh, does it, uh, where do you think the emotion comes from? Does it ever surprise you that this is what causes for a lot of people the highest amounts of emotion? No, I, it doesn't surprise me at all. I think um, the flag, our nation, nationalism, patriotism, those things are and have been for a long time deeply integrated to our identity, which is inescapable then that our emotions would be closely linked to those things, uh, especially from you know people that perhaps have served under that flag in a particular way. Mm-hmm. And I think that there there is an understandable level in some circles of emotion and pushback and challenge it doesn't it that the emotionality of it doesn't surprise me no yep uh and so uh mike dicka who many of you know around here as the former coach of the chicago bears including the uh, 1985 
uh, Super Bowl winning uh, Bears, he recently said, if you can't respect our national anthem, uh, get the blank out of the country. If you, uh, that's the way I feel, of course, I'm old fashioned. So I'm only going to say what I feel. You don't protest against the flag and you don't protest against this country who's given you the opportunities to make a living playing a sport that you never thought would happen. So I don't want to hear all of this. Uh, so that's Coach Dicka. Um, he's been vocal in the past and uh, President Trump has been vocal about this. And others, and I was actually somewhat surprised by the number of people I saw on Twitter last night going, if this is what sports is going to be, I'm not watching anymore. That always mm. surprises me a little bit. Um, yeah. What, what do you, I, I don't want to put you on the hot seat, but maybe I will. Uh, what do you think about when you see them, uh, people kneeling during the national anthem bother you? Does it uh, inspire you? Where do you fall on that? Well, I'll, I mean, I'll first say I, I can certainly understand why it bothers some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people will reference how this began with Kaepernick and where it's gone. You know, um, I think that there's maybe some validity to the origin story here, but it isn't what's happening now. On the other hand, I think it's not like Kaepernick and others are burning the flag. That would be different, right? If I mean, if they were during the national anthem, they were defacing it or something. Uh, that that would be outrageous. The, the kneeling to me is is interesting, and it does like I've seen a number of veterans in particular who said I don't agree with them, but I literally fought for their right to do that. And I've I've always found that pretty moving. The people because I've never served in the military, you've never served in the military. That's right. that's an area that you and I have no place weighing in on. But for someone to say, yeah, I 100% disagree with their position or even their methodology. But that's why I fought for their right to do that. Um, I, I do find that moving and convicting and challenging. I, I, I read an article years ago by uh, Rich Velodas, and he, he was he was kind of presenting the notion that Jesus healing on the Sabbath is, in some sense, akin to kneeling for the national anthem. He was talking about how, how Jesus could have healed on a Tuesday. He could have he could have healed on any of those days, but he chose specifically to do it on the Sabbath as a as a form of protest because he knew that that was sort of like a a sacred cow in you know in this particular context. And he he made an interesting case and he he wrote this. He said perhaps that's a good framework to see the protest of the flag. There might be no higher symbol of value in the collective consciousness of Americans, yet there's something under the flag that needs to be perpetually addressed, namely the failure to live up to the ideals the flag represents. Jesus didn't get rid of the Sabbath. He wanted to see it reflect its original intention. I I, I think that that's actually a pretty interesting treatment of what's going on. Uh, I do find it interesting that, you know, you kind of juxtapose Barkley with Ditka and Again, the internet's the internet, so who's even surprised anymore? But this is this is the kind of article that I, I imagine that people even on Facebook will be diametrically opposed on. But I, I would love for us to have some kind of civil discourse around it because I think it's a really necessary conversation. Yeah, a couple of things stand out to me. One is, and I think you said it well, uh, when whenever there's a a protest going on, uh, we can run to what exactly how the mechanisms of the protest rather than going what exactly is prompting this protest like right. let's let's try to dig deeper because right kaepernick uh, originally kneeled for a purpose right and he, if you might remember the story he actually went to 
uh, a uh, an ex army ranger, I believe Nate Boyer was his name. Nate Boyer is the one who said, "Hey, the most respectful protest you can do is to kneel during the national anthem. Don't sit, don't do this, do that." Right. Uh, which is interesting. That then that's kind of the reaction that it got to be. Uh, but I do think, as you said, there is an opportunity to go, what's behind this? Let's let's listen. Let's have the conversation, whether I would protest in that way or not. Uh, I think uh, that's helpful. And I do think I was having this conversation with somebody recently. I think one of my family members on vacation. Uh, it is interesting that in sports, we still sing the national anthem. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh-huh. Oh, yeah. The yeah. origins of why we do that are actually really interesting. I mean, you don't do that at a musical or a play. Nope. You don't do that in anywhere else, a concert. You don't do that anywhere else where we gather before a movie or whatever else. And so I do think that's an interesting to even say, maybe maybe it's time that we don't do that at games and we move mm-hmm. this conversation somewhere else, I think is an interesting thought and an interesting conversation that, quite frankly, gets some people really angry when you tell well, them that. <laughs> and, and, and I think it is interesting, too, that any any sort of critique of the United States is seen as either like total ungratefulness or an act of betrayal. And people are like, well, I thought we loved this country. And I'm like, yeah, like relationships that I love, like we still point out the, the parts of us that aren't healthy or the parts of us that aren't whole. Like that's actually maybe arguably a loving thing to do to the people and infrastructures that we love is the willingness to say, yeah, but this part isn't quite right yet. You know what I mean? Like that, I don't see that as counter love at all. That's right. That's right. I think that that's a good word to leave on. Let's, uh, we, we constantly want to be better. And so keep having those conversations. Well, I'm sure this will get some traction on our Facebook page, the common good radio show. Uh, you can find these articles and other things there at the Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, uh, eight reasons we must confront others in their sin. This will be a happy one. Let's talk about that next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for being with us this Friday. Hope you have uh, big plans for the weekend. And uh, we look forward to you joining us again on Monday. Uh, before we get to the weekend, wanted to look at this blog uh, written by Chuck Lawless. What a great last name. I'm Lawless. <laughs> it's like a super. Uh, Chuck Lawless says he writes about evangelism, leadership, missiology, church health. So uh, across the board. Uh, but Chuck at his blog wrote about uh, a blog entitled Eight Reasons We Must Confront Others in Their Sin. Eight Reasons We Must Confront Others in Their Sin. And he goes on to say, confronting brothers and sisters in their sin is never an easy task, but it's necessary. Here's why. Before we get into the reasons, Ian, uh, what do you think of even his premise that we must get better at uh, confronting brothers and sisters in their sin? Well, I, I feel like I need to confront you then for your disdain of avocados. I feel like <laughs> not sin. That is I feel uh, like dis- disagree as sinful of the highest order. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll be interested. I haven't read it yet. I'm going to kind of experience it with all of you. I, it is the kind of blog where you, you wonder like, oh, I wonder what was motivating this particular set of eight for him. Like, is, is it a response to something? I think that this is, I was just talking with a friend about this. Uh, a mentor of mine in college would often talk about when you're looking for like your core, like your inner circle, Find people who love you who aren't cowards, because if they love you but mm. are cowards, they'll just like keep telling you the flowery thing. Like they won't tell you you have spinach in your teeth, right? He says there are plenty of people that aren't cowards that'll like confront you, but if you don't know that they love you, you you won't be able to receive it. You need to have both, and that always that always kind of resonated with me. Like, yeah, yeah, I I I know that I need that, 
to people that confront and say, hey, you, you have a blind spot here, man, or you've been heading down a path. So I've certainly been the recipient of people who have confronted me even preemptively, like, hey, you're not erring yet, but you you keep down this trajectory, you're going to be in real trouble. And uh, so, I, you know, I, at least personally, I'm, I've been very, very grateful for people who both love me and aren't cowards who were able to speak hard truths to me. But I'd be curious to know, what do you think? What do you think of this Chuck Lawless blog? Uh, I think in concept, I agree with them. I wonder if this will go pretty aggressive. So that's what I, th- there's a, there's a speaking the truth in love that is uh, very important, but I don't know Chuck Lawless. So maybe he is, he is not going to go hard on this one, but we shall see. Hmm. Uh, let's go with number one. Here we go. Uh, This, again, is eight reasons that we need to confront others in their sin. Number one, the Bible demands it. We are to push one another toward holiness, Hebrews chapter 10. When sin gets in the way, we need to lovingly confront others, believing God will bring them to repentance and restoration. You said you're going to experience this one as we go. So tell me about your experience with the Bible demands it. (laughs) Uh, We are to push one another toward holiness is maybe a stretch for that Hebrews 10 passage, to be honest. He gives a bunch of other references and you can check all these on the Facebook page. I think um, I always, it's interesting because I've certainly been pushed in some ways that have been very, very helpful and very, very unhelpful. Interesting. The other thing that I, I remember using this in a sermon years ago, I said something like uh, when confronting someone, do you come with a, with a hatchet or a scalp? They both cut, but only one cuts to heal. Like mm-hmm. confronting people, or being confronted is always going to sting. But are you coming at it with an axe or a scalpel? And I think the motivation is a big factor there. But I don't know that we actually can push people toward holiness. I don't. I'm not actually sure that's that's possible or what sanctification is even about. To be honest. Okay. Number two, it's unloving not to do it. Hmm. Brothers and sisters living in sin are inviting the discipline of God. If we choose to leave others in their sin, we invite God's judgment on our friend and on us because we've ignored our responsibility. That's unloving toward our friend and not so smart on our part. It's unloving not to do it. Go for it. What's your thoughts? Okay. I think I probably mostly agree with this one. I think I've told the story before of years ago, a guy was in my office and he was kind of admitting he had just a, a laundry list of like really destructive addictions. And then after he had confessed all those things, he said, but hey, don't judge me, man. Just love me for me. And I was like, you're assuming that the most loving thing I can do right now is to just let you continue to destroy your life. I think the most loving thing actually is to confront these toxic patterns because you're about to lose your job and your family and your marriage. You know what I mean? Like sometimes we assume like the loving thing is to just not say anything and keep the peace. It's sort of like the difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper, you know? And I think, uh, Again, depending on the motivation and the relationship, I could certainly see where he's coming from with this one. Yep. Number three, uh, some people really want to overcome their sin. Sin destructively eats at the soul, even when it leads to temporary pleasure. The conviction it brings consumes us during the day and keeps us awake at night. When loving confrontation encourages a brother or sister to bring sin out of the darkness, however, the response is often profound relief. Some people really want to overcome their sin. That seems that seems like a good one, right? I would argue probably more than some. I think people maybe wouldn't have the language or category of sin, but I think like deep down, m- most of us are cognizant of behaviors or actions, or things that we've done or have been done to us that are toxic. Like yeah. don't want that, you know, uh, 
in our lives anymore. I, I think it would, in my, in my experience, it'd be more than just some. Okay. Uh, number four, it is a first step towards restoration. Brothers and sisters cannot be restored apart from repentance and repentance doesn't happen apart from confession and brokenness. Confronting others in their sin is not a call for judgment on them. It's pleading with them to forsake their ways and return to God, uh, return to the God and church that love them. So it's the first step towards restoration. Uh, so his point being, as we confront, we're pointing people in the right direction, the way of health. Yeah, I think that's I think that's part of what uh, Jesus is getting after in the Beatitudes, too. I think part of what he means by poor in spirit or mourn is that when we look at our own sinfulness, like there should be a, a brokenness that that leads us to. And I think the reason part of the reason that Jesus is saying that that person's blessed is that, I mean, if we're not grieved over, you know, what planning, it would call the culpable disturbance of Shalom, like the ways we've contributed to the fracturing of God's dream for the world. then like, how will we ever actually repent the metanoia, the turning around? requires some sense of like, oh, I'm going the wrong direction here. And I think uh, I think that that is mostly right. Okay. Uh, this is an interesting one because now it puts the spotlight back on us. It pushes us to consider our own sin. It's tough to confront another person's sin without investigating our own. If we find that our own sin makes it hard to confront another believer, perhaps two of us need confrontation and confession. I'm glad he went there, right? Like as I'm pointing out a, a sin in someone else, if, if I have any humility and any self-awareness, it's going to cause me to go, ah, let me look at the plank in my own eye. Let me consider my own life. Right. Which again, I, I think that I was exactly going to make that same reference, the plank in our own eye often. And I think, th- th- I think this is why, and I don't know if he covers it here, prayer over all of these is so important because yeah. we were talking about this even last week. We're talking about how to fight cleanly. That if we're not praying beforehand, not just like, oh, God, show them how wrong they are, but also, God, even if I'm not in the wrong, like reveal motivations I have that aren't good. Like I might still be technically right, but my motivation is to like knock them down a peg and not to restore them. And that needs to be weeded out, too. Yeah. yeah. Let me read the last three and then okay. uh, you take whichever one you like the most. OK, <laughs> these are from the eight reasons we must confront others in their sin. Number six, it strengthens the prayers of God's people. Number seven. It reinforces our witness to the world. And number eight, it pushes us to learn how to confront in love. Why don't you take one of those? Yeah, I, I posted a couple of days ago something like, I think we need to remember that scripture is first a mirror, not binoculars. And I think for me, that's that's always been convicting that when we want to first jump to, I need to confront you and your crap. I think it it almost always needs to start first with Lord, like Lord, search my heart, show me what's like toxic in me first, because if, if I don't pray that prayer, then, then really any of these are going to go awry because my motivation is wrong. My heart's not right. Um, but the, the eighth one I think is really important confronting in love or like, as Paul says to the church in Ephesus, like telling the truth, speaking the truth in love. I feel like the in love part is like lacking at least a lot in a lot of our digital realities right now. And, uh, learning how to do that to like tell people the hard truths, but for them to walk away knowing like, man, they're for me and they love me. I, I think it's such an important skill to learn. This is a good, uh, a good blog post. Chuck Lawless, eight reasons we must confront others in their sin. Curious what y'all think out there. We're going to put that up at our Facebook page. Uh, the common good radio show would love your comments. We're going to close out the week uh, by doing something. I enjoy just reading Ian, some of his own tweets oh, and God. hearing the thoughts behind them. We're going to have Ian explain his tweets coming up next year on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today on this Friday. Hope you have a great weekend planned. Uh, one more time, a reminder, you can find all of our content on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Online also at 1160hope.com, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, and our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, we are grateful for those of you who listen to the podcast. All right, Ian, before you head off uh, to go celebrate your anniversary, again, congratulations. Thanks, uh, happy anniversary. Uh, and uh, before you get to do that, we're going to we're gonna just read some of your tweets back to you. And I always <laughs> like to hear, hey, why did you tweet this? Where was this coming from? Why do you think this is important? All right. You ready just, to play this game? Just to be clear, this was not my idea. Just so Oh, that's knows. what makes this fun. What? Oh. That's what makes this fun. No, this was completely uh, just, not your idea. I just want to make sure people know, like, is he spending a whole segment promoting his own tweets? This guy okay. is a maniac, just to be clear. Not only is it not your idea, you don't know the tweets that I've chosen. So, right. <laughs> uh, The first one, all the way back, and they're all good t- tweets, so I will uh, tell you that in advance. Uh, all the way back on July the 7th, you Whoa. wrote Galatians 5, 22 to 25, the fruit of the spirit. The traits mentioned are not commands. The only command in this passage is verse 25. Keep in step with the spirit. The fruit is the result of walking with the spirit, not the prerequisite. We're called to bear fruit, not grow it. Talk to us about that tweet. I I barely remember even writing that, actually. Yeah, I, it's really good. Oh, thanks, man. I think um, especially in our context, in a Western post-enlightenment uh, kind of post-Christian context, there, there's a highly utilitarian way of looking at spirituality, which obviously there are some aspects that are action-oriented. You know, I don't think it's wrong to think about the end of a sermon and like, oh, what do we now do with that? What are the, what are the applicate? I don't think those are wrong questions. I think sometimes we jump to application way too quickly. And then as a result, we sort of wear the burden of like, my spiritual maturity is only as great as like the things that I can accomplish and pastors in particular, they often wear the weight of the world on their shoulders. So we like read this, you know, a lot of people know the fruit of the spirit. We read them as like, I need to like grit my teeth and be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful. When I I don't actually think that's the goal. I think we, Mm -hmm. when we make the fruit, the goal rather than walking in step with the spirit, we, we just, we miss the picture altogether. It's like the goal isn't even to become a better prayer. The, The goal is, closeness with Jesus, to grow in closeness yeah. with Jesus. And when that happens, these things are the outpouring. And and I think, yeah, the difference between bearing fruit and growing fruit for me is enormous. Like the responsibility, and you can, you know, grow my church or grow this platform or, or whatever it is. Again, those aren't evil things, but I, f- I feel like when we take John's word seriously, when he says, no, you need to abide in the vine. And when you're actually abiding in like steeped in resting in that's when these this fruit really begins to begins to grow and so if the command in those few short verses isn't work really hard to grow these fruits it's no walk in step with the spirit when you do that you'll begin to see these things in your life i just think that's a really important distinction and not only important i actually think it's one that a lot of us get wrong (laughs) yeah uh, we try to work. But yeah. So I thought that was good. Okay. Thanks. Second one from Ju- July the 16th. Uh, hashtag quarantine life. You wrote Shakespeare most likely wrote King Lear, Macbeth, and Antony and Cleopatra during a plague inspired quarantine between 1605 and 1606. 
and I'm just trying to respond to emails in a timely fashion. <laughs> this made me laugh, but talk to us. I didn't know that about Shakespeare. Is that is that true? It is true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's again, that's why I put most likely. There's some dispute, but it seems like most people with a fair amount of confidence agree that that's probably the window of time that those things were written, which... <laughs> is super convicting. You and I definitely talked about it on the show a number of times where like a lot of people, especially when all of this hit in March, they went to like full, like, like we're going to climb that mountain mode. I'm going to get the best body of my life. I'm going to learn six languages. I'm going to make a million dollars. And some of, some of our advice even back then was like, that's, that's good. Why don't one step at a time? Like, why don't you don't have to become the best version of yourself during a quarantine, quarantine, a pandemic, in a lot of ways is very traumatic. And we, yes. we read other articles about like, we're experiencing a, a level of grief right now. I was being a little cheeky in the tweet, obviously, but right. trying to also sort of pull back the veil a little bit of like, man, some of us, myself included, who are like really like goal accomplishment oriented and like can really beat myself up if I'm not crushing it everywhere right now. That's and right. Uh, so I was just kind of poking fun of myself. Like, man, this guy accomplished all this. And I'm I'm just struggling to respond to emails in like an adult fashion <laughs> where, where people don't worry about me. You know, oh, that's good. That's good. Last one was from yesterday. Uh, you it's called quote tweeted, right? When you quote someone else's tweet here. Yeah. Uh, so you just wrote preach to Dan White Jr. Mm-hmm. He wrote. Uh, and I thought this would be a good way to end the show because it is inspiring. He wrote, the way of fear pushes us to fight insult with insult, aggression with aggression, hate with hate. The way of Jesus teaches us to fight insult with invitation, aggression with affection, hate with hospi- hospitality. Besides that being wonderfully written, what caused you to want to get this one out to everyone and, and write preach to this one? Yeah, I think he certainly deserves props for keeping the uh, the letters the same. Insult, invitation, aggression, affection, yes. hate, <laughs> hospitality. As preachers, every time I see that, I'm like, oh man, that's so good. Why did I think of that? Which I, I kind of felt that way about this tweet too. Dan White Jr. is another one of those guys that I would love to get on the show because He's got a great book, but his his social media presence is also wonderful. And uh, part of what and we were talking even a little bit yesterday about if you have Jesus in your profile, be mindful of how you behave online. That's the context that I kind of read this. The, the fight insult with insult is pretty much describing most Facebook and Twitter threads I see every day. That's right. Like somebody makes some kind of backhanded comment and then the other person comes back harder and then you just see, which brings us to the next one, aggression. You just see the aggression kind of rise and rise, which sometimes ultimately leads to like a real hatred for either the other person or other people groups and the way of Jesus, which again is as revolutionary and as counterintuitive today than it was 2000 years ago to fight insult with invitation. Like think about that for a second. Let's say we're not in a global pandemic. Let's say someone at church, for example, to your face, just says something horrifically insulting. Like they just rip you apart. They, you, you feel like laid bare. What would happen if your invitation was, hey, you want to come to my house for dinner tonight? <laughs> like, what if we got, yeah. what if we got, you know what I mean? Like think of someone yeah. coming at you really aggressive online and you were not being cheeky, but you actually responded with affection. Like, man, I'm I'm sorry that this season has been so tough for you. I just want you to know I'm praying for you. I love you. Like hate with hospitality. Like think of the person that you hate the most or that you think maybe hates you the most. Like if you can even think of that person, what would it, what would it look like to model hospitality for that person in a, like a real holistic way? Like that, 
there's so much in our like heart and probably even our stomach that's like, oh gosh, I don't I don't know that I'm there yet, which I think a lot of us would agree, but that is in a lot of ways the invitation of this like upside down counterintuitive way of Jesus. And I and I really do. I think now as much as ever, we we need Christians who who live that out, who model that out in the public sphere, in their families, in their neighborhoods, in their churches. And I know they're out there. It is unfortunate that it feels like the most toxic aggressive is always what gets the headlines, but I, I know that they're there. And I think that that's right. it's, it's worth us continuing to kind of lean into that kind of life. Yeah. I think people want that. And it, yeah. but like you said, it's hard because the default is meet anger with anger, aggression with aggression. And uh, so, yeah, that was an inspiring tweet. And that's the one I wanted to leave you guys with uh, because it is, it kind of, it gives us something to really think about mm. as we go into our weekend. So happy anniversary, man. Hope you guys have a great celebration tonight. Thanks, Appreciate it. And uh, we are glad that you joined us on this Friday. Join us again on Monday from 4 until 6. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.